Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me from back home now after a long stint in cheery old London town. Not cheery, I would never call British <laughs> people like, cheery. Yeah. Not my first adjective. <laughs> not that they can't be. They have their moments. Courtney Nguyen, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah, finally home after 33 days in Europe, living out of that ginormous green suitcase that was mm-hmm. uh, somehow packed in everything. But yeah, very, very happy to be back in California, I have to say. I had a blast, and as always, and and can't wait to come back to Europe, but there just comes a point where you're done traveling. There's no place like home. <laughs> there isn't. There isn't. So uh, yeah, so I had a lovely night's rest in my own bed, woke up to my dog sitting on my face, so it was perfect. That sounds good. Yeah. You, we saw each other. We were there. I was there for the first half of your Europe trip, I guess. Correct. At least part of ways in Istanbul, and you managed to get to your next destination before I did because of Sandy. But yeah, so how was the rest of? How was London? How was the whole tournament atmosphere there? This was your second year in a row at this event, I believe. It, right? it was, yeah, and it uh, in a lot of ways it hadn't changed, you know, and and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think that on the whole, the World Tour Finals in London, it, it's uh, it's kind of a match made in heaven because you can charge people exorbitant prices for tickets and people will pay it and the thing is sold out. And that's a pretty remarkable thing, especially in this climate. And especially given I was pretty not shocked, but I was pretty impressed that um, the world tour finals was able to sell out, particularly in light of this year where, I mean, there was a lot of tennis in England, London specifically because of the Olympics so I kind of thought, well, with the World Tour Finals rolling around, I wonder if people will still be, you know, interested, especially after the summer of sport London had and, you know, where people kind of OD'd on sport and, and things like that. But uh, but they came. They came in droves. They paid their, you know, uh, I think the cheapest tickets were like 40 pound up Good to, grief. you know, whatever, 100 something. And mind you, that's that's a ticket for one session. And a pound is not a dollar for those. Of you <laughs> yeah, a pound is not a dollar. Uh, after it's about 1.7, I think right now. Okay. Um, but, and after conversion fees and all that, it's about two, to, it's like two to one. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, mind you, that ticket is for one session and that one session has one doubles match and one singles match. Yeah. So. You, and there would be times when your one singles match that you paid all this money for could be something that where half of it was Yanko Tipsarovich. I was going to say, like a Tipsarovich beatdown that lasted, you know, an hour and 15 minutes. And he's bragging about it lasting an hour on Twitter. Yeah. So, so you know, it's, um, I'm, you know, like to me, I personally, if I were a tennis fan, I would not really see the value in it. Yeah. Compared to Istanbul, where we were before, where you get one session, gets you three singles matches. Correct. One session, three singles matches, and the tickets are like after conversion about five dollars. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, and you get to see Serena and Vika and and Sharapova and, and stuff. So, yeah. you know, obviously different. I mean, apples, oranges, whatever. Totally understand it. But, you know, in the O2 arena is it's cold. I mean, literally, it's cold. I mean, not the this year apparently the well not apparently but this year the actual arena, which is where the tennis is played, was actually quite hot inside. Mm. I understand Andy Murray has complained about how cold it's been the last few years. 
Hmm. They actually cranked up the heat to where people were joking that people were falling asleep because it was so hot. It's dark in there. Yeah, and it's very dark. But so the O2 arena, the way it's situated is that it's like the O2 facility is like this big tented thing, if you've seen it. And the inside of it, obviously, there's the arena where the actual event takes place. And then on the outer ring, which is still like under the tent, is called Entertainment Avenue. And it has like pubs and restaurants and things like that. And you can access that without a ticket. Like people who live in Greenwich go there to like eat. Interesting. And stuff and entertain and whatever. So you'll like be leaving the O2 arena at like 10 o'clock at night and you'll see these like girls coming in in like mini skirts about to go clubbing. It's like super weird. But yeah, that entertainment alley though is like not heated. So people are like walking around in this semi indoor facility like wearing wool hats and scarves and trying not to freeze their asses off. So it's a it's a weird facility. But yeah, I mean, inside it's just I don't know. It's just I don't know if it's like the crowd or whatever it is. It just doesn't feel very warm in there, but it's just like it has it's very it's very dark first of all. Like like I already said twice. And it really does look dark on TV to the point where even I think Federer was wearing like a relatively royal bluish purple shirt thing this week. But on TV, it almost looked black at sometimes, just because there was so little light. And I thought it almost was to the point where rallies were a little bit hard to follow occasionally mm-hmm. on the stream, on the feeds. I know you were probably watching some on the monitors and some in person. Yeah, but. yeah. And, you know, I mean, the crowd was great when Roger played. They were really, really loud. Um, but I have to, I mean, I confess, I really thought that, well, I guess not thought. I would be if I said I thought it. But I was hoping that after the Olympics, that that British this British sporting public would have turned a corner, mm-hmm. realized, oh, it's okay to go freaking nuts at a sporting event and to cheer and be loud and to bring that energy. And at least with the tennis of with this tennis event, it just kind of didn't really seem like that happened. It seemed like it was the same little crew that was all you know tennis fans that were always there and. Which is understandable because it's a different demographic when you're charging that much money for a ticket. And there was a lot of talk about this when they were playing in the semifinals about how you mentioned how the crowds were loud for Federer, mm-hmm. not Murray, Federer. Correct. And how during their semi, a lot of the crowd, possibly majority of the crowd, at least close to it, was pulling for Federer over Murray. There was no doubt it was more than a majority. Yeah. yeah. Why, why does that happen? That's the biggest question. I mean, I mean, a lot of that is obviously, you know, Roger's global popularity and, you know, but but setting aside the semifinal, um, even before that, when Murray took the court for the first time for his first round robin match against Burdick, the crowd was not like, I mean, you know, you're welcoming back. This is the first match Andy Murray has played on home soil since he broke your stupid curse that you guys talk about all the time. Right. Right. Okay. You know, and, and became like, you know, a national hero after the Olympics and all that sort of stuff. His first time welcoming you back, the crowd I noticed was like noticeably subdued. He walked out on court and people, I really just expected a very loud ovation, you know, cause it wasn't like he was going to get out pulled when it comes to fan support against Burdick. Right. Um, but I, I but I turned to a bunch of the, the other, you know, journalists uh, courtside and then back in the room, you know, to ask them what they thought. And everybody was like, yeah, it was surprisingly quiet. How much of that do you think is about the British tennis public thinking that, you know, sitting on their hands is the thing to do? And how much of it is that Andy Murray, for all of his sort of um, for all of how he is the nation's savior, he's also not an especially electrifying person to watch. 
let's sure. say. Yeah. He doesn't have that sort of, you know, crowd pumping up personality. No, he doesn't have a natural sporting charisma mm-hmm. about him. Um, you know, it's it's always, we always say this as it's being quite a disconnect because for those of us who are around the sport a lot and around the players quite a bit, we know that Andy actually, I, I mean, at least I know for myself and I, I know for a number of different other writers that I've talked to, we know the Andy that's on court, we get it. And we see that and we're like, yeah, that I can see how people don't like that or don't respond to it. I suppose the, you know, a lot of frustration and very, very kind of negative and, and bordering on whiny sometimes. Yeah. Borderline whiny to himself, you know, like whiny to himself. Right. right. Um, But when you actually do talk to him or when you're around him and you see him, you know, over an extended amount of time and you get that access, you do know that that's not, I mean, that is him, but that's just, but he's actually a much more articulate, intelligent, charming person in person than he is on court. So he's he, at work. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. He's he's that's his job and that's what he's doing. So you know it is frustrating that way. But I think that yeah, I mean, in this golden era of sport that is of tennis that's dominated by Roger, obviously from a fan perspective, he's yes. I mean, the guy came in behind Nelson Mandela as being like the most trusted human being on the face of the <laughs> both both South African, by the way. Both South African, shocker. As, so there's that, and then you have Rafa who is pretty universally beloved so long as you're not like a hardcore fed fan. Like, you know what I mean? Like you can't really Mm -hmm. hate on Rafa. He's, he's a nice guy and he's, you know, there really doesn't leave that much room left. I mean, even Novak, he's the number one player in the world two times, you know, back to back. He's winning slams and, you know, consistent and all that. And that guy struggles. Yeah. I mean, Roger and Rafa cornered the market. I mean, there really is not infinite fan support out there to be had. Right. It's a limited number of people, a limited amount of, you know, passion of affection. It sounds weird, but, you know, people only have so much energy to devote to who their favorites can be. Right. And Roger got there first of the current crop and really put himself way ahead of everybody else. Like 2004, mm-hmm. he won three Grand Slams, never looked back, essentially. Mm-hmm. Nadal has made a little bit of a imprint into that. I think mostly probably from people who weren't already Federer converts. Mm-hmm. And that leaves, you know, honestly, most of tennis is just down to those two guys. And then Djokovic has a smaller portion, Murray smaller still, get the occasional like Roddick fan back when he was around. Uh, Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. So people have secondary fandoms, like a lot of Nadal fans are also Freyr fans, I think. mm -hmm. That's not a coincidence. And yeah, I think that's basically how it goes. And it is tough. I mean, it's a tough thing for the sustainability of the game on some level when you need to have one of those guys there to have a tournament be, you know electric oh absolutely i mean i think that in a lot of ways uh london was super smart in kind of putting together a bid to keep the world tour finals for an extra two years through 2015 because they're basically going to get the roger federer years yeah which is all they need Mm -hmm. you know and uh you know and and to be fair too because i saw a lot of kind of the, the blowback from those of us who were on site who were kind of like surprised that, you know, um, how pro Federer the, the, the crowd was when he played Murray in the semis. And I, I do want to clarify, it's not just that they were pro Federer. I'm absolutely prepared for a crowd to be pro Federer everywhere, no matter everywhere playing. Now, I was trying to count the number of times the crowd has not been for Federer anywhere ever. 
and came up with maybe, you know, closest five would, occasions. Yeah, the closest would, would be Madrid. But in my head, like, I was thinking about it, and I was like, mm, the only place I could imagine that Federer would be cheered against, and that's, this is, goes back to my point, is that it wasn't just that everybody was pro-Federer, that's fine, but people were really vocally anti-Murray. Mm during that match and they were kind of booing him. They were, you know, heckling him when he went to change rackets, you know, and, and things like that. That was what was shocking to me, not the yeah. pro Federer, but like to be booed by your own crowd in your, like in a tournament on home soil. That's a bit. That's cold. That's yeah. cold. That's brutal. So that was what was shocking to me. But so in the same way, the only way that I would see maybe a crowd booing Federer would be a tournament in Serbia. Yeah. With Novak, you know, only because I think that the, there's less tennis tradition in Serbia, so they don't really. As, as a people, I think they are booers. Yeah, they're a little bit more. They're they're ha- they're happy to go there, you know. And Novak is an absolute god in that country, so there's no rooting against Novak. Right. No matter who he plays, so that would be, like, I almost want to see. I mean, I would love to see that match happen. It'd be cool. They should do an EXO or something in Serbia. Yeah, but at EXO, they wouldn't boo him at an EXO. That'd be pretty brutal. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like Serbia doesn't have that much access to tennis. And so if that was their one chance to boo Federer, uh, they might take it. Maybe. Yeah. They paid their money. We'll see. So the Serbian guy beat the Swiss guy in the final. Yes, he did. Was that an, Is that an important result? Um, Is it an important result? It is an important result insofar as I think the Swiss guy didn't beat the Serbian guy in the final. Okay. You know, in other words, I think, I can't remember who, oh, Ed McGrogan wrote a piece for ESPN where he had observed, and I hadn't noticed this, I guess, at the time, that with the win in London, Novak has beaten Roger seven of the last ten times, Mm. which I found to be surprising. I I guess as the rivalry has kind of gone on, I just, I knew Novak had been getting the better of him, but I didn't realize it was at that margin. So, yeah, so in that way, no, I mean, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, I think that the match was probably more significant than the result. I mean, the match was a great match. Um, Good, great, great trade set match. Yeah, I mean, it was even, you know, straight sets, but separated by one point and really should. I mean, I was hoping that it was going to go three um, because they were just playing so well. Um, So it was fun to watch. But at the end of the day, Novak's number one. He would have been number one regardless. Had Roger won, I think, yeah, that would have opened up the door to a debate uh, as to player of the year but as it is i mean can't argue with novak what novak did this year that was gonna be my next question basically player of the year and people were talking before that match about having you know player of the year on the line and i said that i don't really think there was an argument to be made for federer this year for player of the year he won one he only made one major final mm-hmm. he won it he was number one for a while but only making one major final when three other guys both made, all made multiple major finals not enough for me. That's a good argument, yeah. And Murray, I think you got to give it either Djokovic or Murray. Uh, Djokovic finishes year number one, wins a bunch of Masters titles, a slam, the World Tour Finals, makes uh, two more slam finals at the French and U.S. Opens, did okay at the Olympics, came in fourth, which you don't get a medal for. Yeah. Continued, basically, he was given the big head start at the beginning of the year, kind of having the top ranking, and he held on to it after some adversity. Murray... The fifth biggest event, I think we can all agree, is probably the Olympics, ahead of the World Tour Finals. Yeah. Yeah. Murray won two. He won the Olympics and the U.S. Open, made the finals of Wimbledon, generally changed his sort of first line of his, you know, obituary, put it that way, in terms of what he's accomplished in this sport. 
in a way that Djokovic kind of just continued what he'd already started. Um, and he ended the, you know, perilous, heart harrowing times of British futility. <laughs> it lasted for decades and decades. So I think it's one of those two guys. I think my vote probably would go to Djokovic, but yeah, I think there is a case to be made for Murray that a lot of people have made. I think that, did I see that John Wertheim, your colleague, nominated Murray for Sportsman of the Year? He did, In yeah. that sort of traditional, I'll nominate a tennis player thing he does. Yes, he did. Which I thought was an interesting pick. I mean, I think that only because he could have picked Serena. Yeah, that's what I would have picked. You know, I mean, I think that her, even though we know Serena's dominant, we know she's capable of the tennis that she played, just the manner, just the story of her year and the way that it unfolded was a pretty incredible story. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, like I'm definitely I totally see, I totally see the argument for Murray being player of the year to the extent that you you look at it this way, which is when we think back on 2012, what will we remember? Exactly. And I think that it has to be it is Andy Murray in that way. I mean, he he broke through and then those images of him, you know, leaping in the air after he won the gold medal, you know, in tears at Wimbledon, hiring Lendl and and getting so close to knocking off Djokovic uh, at the Aussie, uh, being the guy who ended Djokovic's winning streak to start the year in 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 Dubai, mm-hmm. you know, and then obviously finishing off at, at the U.S. Open, it was in a lot of ways his year. His and the way it unfolded was the year unfolded was really about Andy Murray and and his ability to get close, rebound and and. To 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 finish triumphantly to finally win one yeah you know i mean so i get that it's a little bit too fluffy for my liking i mean if you look at it on a spreadsheet murray doesn't win not even close but i mean the people who vote on these things i think for the same for atp as it is for wta Mm -hmm. people who vote on these things are writers so right writers writers like stories and and it was a heck of a lot more fun writing about andy murray this year than it was about writing about any of the other three just because Djokovic did it all and did better in 2011 I mean, it's not fair to say that, you know, oh, whatever, you just want to slam in the World Tour Finals and made two other finals. When that would go down, it's the best year in almost anybody's career. Mm-hmm. But he'd done better the year before. So. Sure, but I mean, my argument for Novak, and Novak would be my, my choice for player of the year, and I know that's a very boring pick because you you never want to pick the number one as the player of the year, but was just that it's a hell of a lot, it, it's it's the, the amount of expectation that was on him coming into this year given what he had done in 2011 and for him to really, I mean, in a, I mean, obviously he didn't like completely back it up because nobody could. I mean, 2011 was a year that will go down as probably one of the best years, if not the best years of tennis, by a single season uh, by an individual player. It's in the conversation for sure. For sure. So to come in after all of that and to really, really consolidate in a really realistic way to play, the level of tennis that he was able to sustain over the full year. I mean, he only had like what two bad losses, like Janowitz, no, uh, Query, and Tipsarovich, Madrid. No, he lost to somebody in, in Madrid because he was one of the blue clay complainers. Yeah, he lost to Isner in New Wells. Right, which I didn't think was a bad loss. No, not really. He lost to. Um, just going off memory here, that's probably not the best way to do it. He lost to. Um. Yeah, not many people. He didn't lose very much. What do you think? He didn't, about he didn't it? lose that much, and when he lost to anybody, he lost to somebody in the big three. I mean, you know. Yeah. He went on a stretch where he lost five straight matches to other big four guys. Right. 
Right. But, uh, but yeah, to like, re- you know, to rebound the way that he did. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, to me, just psychologically, it was just impressive um, yeah. for him to be, and especially the way he plays. And, you know, because you look at him and he's not a player that I look at that isn't all that dissimilar to Rafa in a way, you know, like how can you put your body through that? Through an entire season, he's much more herky jerky than even Rafa is. But you know, remained injury free, got through it all. It was—I don't know—I I found Novak's year tri- just really, really impressive. Once the World Tour Finals was over, just because of the way that he was able to beat Roger. So here's the question: Now that Murray has this sort of albatross off his neck, except for Wimbledon, I think it's gonna be three times as bad at Wimbledon now for him. Really? <laughs> um, but how? Uh, who is the pressure on next year? Ooh, it's an interesting question. In terms of what, though? Just in terms of pressure, quote-unquote, sports writer term pressure. Uh, Who's feeling the heat? I'd say Rafa. Rafa, I think, is a good answer. Right? I mean, it's um, just because, you know, he's been gone for so long, and the fact that his, you know, last match was what it was, which was him getting blasted off the court by Rosal. Mm-hmm. You know, and and a lot of questions as to what, and a lot of speculation as to whether or not, you know, is this like the second phase of Rafa's career? You know, has he reached his peak? And now it's it's going to be just a, a a fight to kind of not remain competitive. He's going to be in the top four regardless of what for a long time, but to really be able to nip these guys again, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the pressure is probably on him, although it shouldn't be. I mean, he doesn't have any no. to defend after Wimbledon or no, after French Open. So. My picks, I think, would be um, not the top. I don't think it's the big four at this point. I think the big four, now that they all have a slam, I mean, Murray winning a second slam to sort of not make this one a fluke, quote unquote, will get some, you know, dumb articles written along that line, I'm sure. Win a slam. I'm saying, I'm saying in advance, they're dumb. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to write it, and I will say it's dumb. Yeah. I do think that it's about the field at this point. It's about Songa. It's about Isner. About Ronich. One of those guys has to step up and, you know, actually make a make slam goods. final. Make I mean Songa's done it a while ago, but you know Delpo. Win win. Delpo. Yeah. Delpo's moving up. Do something. Mm-hmm. You no. Know, end the big four era. The big four era needs an ending at some point. And the big four can't end because they all retire. Oh, that's a thing. So Do you really think that that, that, that somebody can legitimately break in? Like seriously. No. Yeah. I mean, nobody has a consistency. Mm-mm. I mean, if you put people at their best, Thomas Burdich can play at his best and beat any of them. Mm-hmm. So can Sanga. Mm-hmm. So can Isner, I guess. So can... Delpo. Yeah. Delpo, sure. But if can they do it the number of weeks these guys do it? I don't think so. Mm-mm. I don't. I think there's just a huge gap in belief and in achievement at this point. Not necessarily in talent. I don't think the talent gap is that big. It is there is a talent gap, but I don't think it's. The main but that's thing. what makes the 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 gap so galling to me, because it's not a talent issue. No. I find especially that, honestly where Murray is concerned. Right. Yeah. No, I mean I find that to be just like one of the, and obviously I'll say this, and people will be like, "Well, you're a writer, you should write it more." I was like, "Okay, fine, New Year's resolution, I'll write it more," but like. It's just, I find it to be just like this dark kind of underbelly when it comes to like the whole ATP golden era story. Like I'm kind of a bit tired of hearing that all oh, these guys are just better. No, they're really not just better. Like There I, were times where I think you'd look back on like Steffi Graf. Right. I think she was just better. Or you look at a Serena. 
Yeah. I think in a lot of ways she's just better. Yeah. Sampras probably just better. Yeah. But right now, I don't know. I just don't, I'm, you know. I mean, obviously, consistency is a skill. Yeah. <laughs> and clearly, these guys, you know, outside of the top four or out of the top five, because I think that Ferrer's consistent. He's just not, he's the actually talent gap not is as huge big. between Ferrer and the yeah, other guys. He's got, there's, he's, he's got a talent gap. But with the, some of the other guys, it's really, it's just frustrating to kind of watch them just go through the motions, to just be happy they made a semi or yeah. be happy they made a quarter. And now they're up against the top four and they kind of just fold. And I've said it before, I think on the podcast, I don't, I never, I never think that that's happening on the WTA. Yeah, I don't really either. I feel like there's talent gaps, but I feel like every single one of those girls like thinks that they can beat any of the other ones, you know? Like Sarah Rani in Istanbul. Right. I mean, she had no business talent wise being on the court with anybody else there or even almost anyone in the top, you know, 15. But there she was, you know, hanging in there with Redvanska in this, like, epic match. Bageling Sam Stozer. Bageling, well, I mean. I know. Who doesn't <laughs> do that? But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's something that it is Ferrer-ish, I guess. But Ferrer doesn't pull off the big wins as much. Um, he really doesn't beat the big four guys. Really, ever. Except I guess he beat Murray in Paris. But it's Clay. Right. So. So, yeah. So that's, I think, a point we've made before, but. Paris repeating. You just wish that, you know, somebody like Thomas Burdish could have a Lucas Russell moment. And uh, not to compare the two, but... I was going to say, are you comparing the two? I, I, I hope you're not comparing us. No. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever do that again. I've, I've learned my lesson. Mm-hmm. You're not. That basically sums up player of the year for the men. We also, this week, were due our ballots for the WTA awards on the other side. So the media votes for a few WTA awards. So this week was the voting and there were, what was it? Four categories, Ben? Five. Five. Okay. Five. Uh, the, f- the first category, we'll just do manure. I have the email up here. Okay. Uh, first category is player of the year and there are three nominees and they are the ones you would expect. It's Victoria Azarenka, Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams. Uh, Courtney, who did you vote for and why? I voted for Serena Williams. And as for the why, you know, I could read off her resume of the year. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it was. But, you know, you just can't, even though she finishes the year at number three, which I don't actually argue with. There's no doubt that right now, as of this moment, she's the best player in women's tennis. She's motivated. She's fit. She, she's playing just really, really well. And, uh, you know, I think that it, and what made it fun to write about Serena this year was that it wasn't a full year of domination. That there were yeah. a lot of question marks after the French as to what, how she was going to react and what was going to happen. After Australia, after Miami even. Yeah, yeah. Loses to Makarova in Australia on a bum ankle. Loses to Wozniacki uh, in Miami. You know, loses to, to, to Rosano, obviously, at the French. So uh, to see her bounce back and to really, I mean, struggle in the first week of Wimbledon. You know, she had to fight her way through a couple of really tough three-set matches that really could have gone either way. Yeah. Um, and to just from there really build the belief and that belief carrying her all the way through the latter half of the year. Just tremendous. Agreed. So I, I, I also voted for Serena for all those reasons. I mean, she wins two slams, another slam and doubles, two Olympic gold medals, Istanbul, Madrid, Charleston, you know, Stanford, Stanford 
two, I mean, she only lost one match after the French Open. It's ridiculous. And I think it, I think it could go down. I mean, it's there's an argument to be made between this and 2002, so which was her better year. Just, I mean, you trade essentially a slam for Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and she was injured in Australia. She had been healthy. Definitely think she could have won that tournament for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this goes to her year. So that one, I think, I, I have a, I have a feeling she's going to win that one. Yeah, I think going she, away. She just might. That does not to say that Azarenka hasn't didn't have a spectacular year. Oh, she absolutely and did. Azarenka, think about what we thought about Azarenka at the, at the end of 2011. I mean, she made one slam semi at that point in her life, and not a ton of big. I mean, she won a couple of Miamis and kind of off years, uh, but now she's really, really. Very solidly up there. She's legit and she's here to stay. I mean, that's yeah. the nice thing about Vika is that you just don't really get the sense that she's going to go away. And, and she doesn't play the kind of tennis that, you know, looks temporary. Right. Yeah. So, power credit to her. And then with with Maria, you know, I mean, there's there's an argument to be made insofar as, that, like, just her consistency, complete, completing the career slam, finally winning on clay. That was yeah. incredible. But... You don't get if you get your butt handed to you by the other two players consistently. It's hard to say that you're player of the year. <laughs> There's no doubt if I was if the ballot was about naming your one, two, three, like in the whole tour, mm-hmm. Sherry Poe would be my number three, but she's not top two. Mm-hmm. So, ne- next award on this ballot is comeback player of the year, which is actually the one that I had the hardest time voting Agreed. for. Agreed. Um, the nominees on this one are Kirsten Flipkins, uh, his Way. Uh, Yaroslava Shvedova and Venus Williams. Mm-hmm. And Courtney, I know who you voted for on this. We talked about it a little earlier. Explain why Venus got your vote there. <laughs> Venus got my vote because I don't know. I still look back and I think about it. I can't believe she qualified for for the Olympics. That's pretty impressive. I, I mean, I really can't. I mean, what was she outside of the top uh, one something? She was like one thirties. Yeah, outside of the top like one twenty or something. Um, when she started her comeback in Miami and beat Kvitova there, which I know everybody's like, oh, anybody can beat Kvitova these days. That was but a good match. It was a good match. Beat her. Beat Ivanovic. That was a good match. Another that good was match. Not, that was one of Ivanovic's better matches of the yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Um, so played well, and then, you know, a week later, made the semis in Charleston, losing to Stozer, I think, right? Quarters, but yeah. Quarters, okay. And then from there, like you know, sucking it up and flying over to Europe and playing the, the European clay courts and getting a ring. I mean, I just, I just, it's, it's incredible to me what she was able to do. And then on to, to qualify there. And then on top of that, to then kind of take it through, you know, get that result that uh, make the semis in uh, Cincy and then finally cap off her year in Linz, right? Luxembourg, Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Uh, not, to me- not to mention her world team tennis triumphs along the way. That's actually really true. I mean, she was like a world team tennis hoss. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I just, I just, it, it's remarkable to me, um, you know, and for her to learn, because you know, it's easy to forget just because of just how talented she is and the results that she gets, just how much she was still learning how to deal with her Sjogren's syndrome. Yeah, and there were some low points. There were. There were some. Brutal like match. That Vez, that match in the first round of Wimbledon, which is which is brutal. Her match against Redvanska in Miami, she just looked like she was sleepwalking through it. She just, yeah. just looked absolutely wiped. So yeah, I mean, for her to kind of learn as she was going all along was incredible, and just to be very very graceful about it, I, I thought throughout yeah. it all, and 
you know, the, the Williamses are not ones to really openly talk about a lot, especially when it's like personal stuff. Yeah. But I was always really impressed by how willing she was actually to talk about kind of her physical health on a daily, weekly basis. So, and, and she was great. She was, yeah. So she was, she, my... really, I mean, she really does do a good job bringing sort of a, I don't know, a gravitas to the tour that might not be there without her. Right. I think in terms of sort of a, I don't want to call her elder stateswoman, but that's sort of what it is at this point. I mean, she perspective. Yeah, she really does. And sort of a, you know, calm, clearly very cerebral person impressed. And yeah, so I did not vote for her though. <laughs> I voted, I voted for Shvedova. Yeah. Um, just because I think, I think Venus got a lot of recognition for this. And I think Shvedova is happy to see her on the ballot because Shvedova was really, really low with a lot of injuries she had. I mean, she was way out of the top 100, had to go play a bunch of 25Ks in like Olamuk, Mexico and stuff and just all these horrible sort of places. Not the Mexico, I don't know anything about that place. Might be nice. Um, but there's a lot of really tough travel to get back to where she was, which wasn't that high. And then she did some pretty incredible things this year. Yep. Golden set. I still, I still, I mean, people talk about it, but it was, you know, really, really cool. She beat the quarters of the French. She just did a lot of cool things. And I think that she was sort of a more undernoticed story. I think, I think Venus is going to get this award, I have to imagine. Um, but I thought Shvedova deserved my vote. Fair. But, totally fair. She was my Flip, number two. also did, did a bunch of big things too. I don't know as much of the details on, but mm. I don't know really much about what Sue did this year. But I know she won Guangzhou. So. She did. Next uh, one is Team of the Year. It's a doubles award. Mm-hmm. Uh, nominees are Irani Vinci, Lavashkova Hrdechka, <laughs> Hubert Raymond, Kirilenko Petrova, and Serena and Venus. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't talk about this one. Who did you vote for for this, Courtney? I got really boring and I went for Ronnie Vinci. Yeah, as did I. I just, I mean, tremendous consistency. Yeah. One, two slams mm-hmm. more than anybody. They got blown out by the Williamses at the Olympics. Um, I mean, if Serena and Venus played all the time, they'd be the best, but they yeah. really did. Right. And they lost early at the U.S. Open. They did. Uncharacteristically. Um, yeah, so I think it's all about Ronnie Vinci, who are both, you know, super, super short. So good on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one is Most Improved which is an interesting award. Um, nominees are Sarah Arani, Angelique Kerber, Varvara Lepchenko, and uh, the doubles team of Cops Jones Spears. It's an interesting sort of inclusion there. Yeah. Corinne, talk me through your thought process on the most important. Yeah, this one was tough for me because, and I think that you and I maybe have talked about this because of a bunch when we were in Istanbul. Yeah, before, uh, the, before the list came out. Yeah, like offline about... I think I asked you once, like, what do you think, who do you, who had the more impressive year to you, uh, Arani or Kerber? It was in some sort of like context of that. So we discussed it. And so my vote was for Kerber. And I know that that doesn't really entirely make sense because most people will say, well, she made the semis of the US Open last year and she was already like top 20 when this year began and, you know, all these sorts of things. I get that. But she, the chick finished number five. Like she's in the top five. Like the yeah. the the, it's one thing to move from, you know, top one hundred to top thirty. It's a tremendous, you know, it's seventy spots. But uh, what you have to do to break into the top five and be there relatively consistently, or top ten even, that is so much more difficult, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and you know, Arani had made because uh, I was trying to decide between those two. Arani had made like slam quarters before, you know, like, mm-hmm. she, you know, she had some success. So for me, 
what Kerber was able to do, I found it to be just shocking uh, to win whatever more matches in one year than she had won in the six previous seasons combined. She's the only woman to uh, in the top five to beat Serena this year. Yeah, beat her and was, did very well against Venus too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she was just always there and she was always fighting. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I found what she was able to do this year really, really jaw-dropping. Uh, I actually voted for Lepchenko ah. in this category. Okay. And I do think I do think the Irani-Kerber debate is interesting. I mean, I think the reason I would pick, I would have picked Irani when we had these debates offline before I picked Irani, just because I felt like Kerber the end of 2011 was really on the rise and made the slam as this at the U S open and did well somewhere else. I think after that too. And so she was sort of someone to watch. Nobody was watching Sarah Ronnie. Sarah Ronnie was someone who we knew who she was. We knew she was like a 40 to 50 player clay court, moonballer, whatever. And she just completely, you know, tore that up. I mean, she made, she had a pretty tough draw to the finals of the French open beat, uh, Ivanovich, Kuznetsova, uh, Stoser. Stoser, Kerber. I mean, just a lot of big people. I mean, beating Stoser in the semis of the French Open, that was shocking. It was. That she did that. That was shocking. And then she gave Sharapova a pretty good fight. She only won about five games, but that was a relatively tight final. Um, and then she did well in Istanbul, too. And she made the semis of the French, of the, sorry, of the U.S. Open. She's number one in doubles. That's big. All that stuff, no one could have expected it. But Levchenko, for me, was someone... I don't think most American tennis fans had heard of before this year. She was like number 130, really on the periphery. I saw her play in a challenger back when she was still representing Uzbekistan in like 2006. It was in Washington. She had a really weird grunt at that time that she doesn't completely have anymore. And she just sort of, you know, busted down the door of the U.S. Olympic team. I mean, talk about Venus making the team. If you'd said at the beginning of the year that Levchenko was going to make the team, (laughs) that would have been insane. And she did it. And she just sort of didn't care that, you know, she wasn't in the USTA's plans. Mm-hmm. And they talked about, you know, when there were questions about her Fed Cup requirements, if they made her eligible. Well, the truth of the matter was that no one had ever considered her for Fed Cup before, before she qualified. Because, I mean, she was never ranking-wise close to that. And so what she did, making herself, you know, really... She's in the top 20 now. That's big from being completely unknown before. She's the so. number two American. She's the number two American. By, by, yeah, Venus is catching up to her, but she's she is. number two. And, uh, yeah, it's just really impressive. And so I've been very impressed by her, and uh, she got my vote there. But I do think that it's probably going to come down to one of the other two, but strong category this year. Very strong. All three, all three of those, I think, very really, strong. really are they all have good any other year. Yeah. Last award on our ballot is Newcomer of the Year, which has four nominees. Uh, Kiki Burtons of the Netherlands, Laura Robson, Sloane Stevens, and Heather Watson. There's a lot of debate about this. This is one of those things that people actually talk about, sort of, not yeah. like under this title, but like who's the next big thing, Right. which I guess is sort of what this award kind of boils down to. I think we both voted the same way on this. We did. Courtney, uh, tell, me, tell me why you voted for Laura Robson. I mean, well, first of all, I don't think that you can say that Sloane Stevens is a newcomer of the year. That's fair. It, to me, Sloane this year uh, stalled out a bit, I think. I don't think that she really... I think that she would have been a good vote last year, you know, given mm-hmm. her, her her kind of runs in into the the slams, um, particularly the U.S. Open last year. Uh, this year, uh, you know, she didn't really do anything particularly notable. You know, she was just kind of there, 
She, yeah. you know, backed up. She, she followed, she was, it was eerily similar in some ways. I mean, she went to the U.S. Open third round, lost yep. to Ivanovic. Yeah. Same as last year. Yep. She did make the fourth round of the French. She did. But she really didn't beat anybody there to Correct. speak of. The, the draw kind of opened up for her a bit yeah. to, to make the, the fourth, and she got absolutely shellacked by Stozer, but... And she ran very, very hot and cold, too. She did. She did. And and so the same with Kiki Burton's. I kind of feel like she had some good results, but nothing particularly memorable. So it really came down to the two Brits. Which is which is another debate in and of itself that's had constantly between these two. Yeah. I mean, people, these two, these two, from all we can tell, they get along very well. People really are trying to pit them against each other, you know, forever and ever. Well, it's weird because people are trying to pit them against each other and yet not separate them. In there was that words, award they just tied for, wasn't there? Right. The London Times awarded them young... Young Sportswoman of the Year or something. Yeah, maybe. Like, gave it to them both, which... Like, they're, like they're the Bryan twins. Or yeah, something. and it's kind of like, just man up and choose one. Like, it's okay. Like, they're adults. Like, you're not going to hurt their feelings. And the argument, you know, that I heard a lot in Britain, because I was complaining about it a little bit, uh, from people were like, well, but, you know, Heather won Osaka. And I was like, yeah, I mean, with all due respect to everybody who is involved in the sentence that I'm about to make, that I'm about to say, like, Sam Stozer won Osaka. Oh. Sam Stozer has only won three titles in her entire career. Yeah. Like, and if you look at what who Heather had to beat to get there, it wasn't like that. I don't know. I'm not belittling the accomplishment. It was a tremendous accomplishment. But if it was gonna, okay. It was if okay. Gonna, yeah, it was fine. But if you're going to look at that list of four people one name jumps out and it would be Laura's just because what she did at the U S open, you know, or even at the Olympics winning this, the, the silver with Andy in mixed. Yeah. It was incredible. But really like what you are rewarding her for, if you vote for Laura is that tremendous, you know, tremendous week in New York. The quality of those wins. I mean, beating Kleisters and Lena back to back. That's massive. Like beating them for anybody, Kim and Lena, did not choke those matches and they didn't they didn't play poorly in those matches they didn't play their best but they didn't play poorly they should have they played well enough to beat somebody who was outside of the top you know whatever she was at the time uh top 100 top 90 or whatever it was she was my vote she was yours as well i mean what was your rationale i mean basically that i mean she had the quality of wins and i don't award them i think kiki burton's got on this ballot because she won like fez or something Mm. heather got on here because she won Heather, first of all, is not as much of a newcomer. I mean, she's been around the Pro Tour a little bit longer. Right. It's sort of the top levels. She's three years older than Laura. Two or three, yeah. Two or three. I mean, she's significantly older than Laura um, in the sort of, you know. Like, she's more of a Sloane Stevens contemporary than a Robson contemporary. I think so. I think so. I mean, she made the quarters of Auckland like two years ago. Right. She, I mean, that was sort of her breakout. But the quality of, of Laura's wins was really incredible. I mean, beating, first of all, she beat. Sam Crawford at that tournament, who went on to win the junior girls. That was a tough match. That was a really high-quality match. Uh, beat Kleisters, Lena, good test to Sam in the fourth round. And Osaka, Heather, not to, I mean, we're not trying to tear down Heather by any stretch here, but you had to pick one. Heather beat Misaki Doi in the semis of Osaka. And then Kai Chen Chang in the final. Who lost just this week to a Chinese teenager in the Asia-Pacific Australian Open wildcard playoff Kai Chen Cheng that's unfortunate yeah yeah so that's like a challenger essentially in terms of the player she had to play she beat uh Medina Garriguez in like the second round but again 
that's nothing to, you know, give somebody a trophy over. Right. And people forget, too, like, you know, even before the U.S. Open, Laura Robson made, what was that, semis of Palermo? Yeah. Um, on right. clay, which was, was which was pretty shocking. You know, loses again. It, well, I mean, she had, had a but tough loss uh, to Schiavone in the first round at Wimbledon. But uh, on the on the whole, you know, like uh, it, her wins were just more, you know, resonated more. And when you want to talk about newcomer of the year, this was her first full year on the tour. Yeah, she just turned eighteen in January, so the 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 tournament restrictions, the age eligibility restrictions, were off. So for her to you know finish whatever it was fifty three fifty four um, on her first year and and to notch those wins that's for an eighteen year old that's that pretty much solidifies your spot as the newcomer of the year. I think so, and I also just think if you so you know if you vote if you this award you sort of vote thinking like well I look back on this vote and think I made the right choice who's going to pan out. I mean I think Robson does have the weapons the bigger upside game wise for sure. Absolutely. At this point, she has much better size. She's much taller than Heather, much better power. And those are the kind of things that, you know, her speed is improving. Her point construction will continue to improve. But the sort of natural things, which are just, you know, good genes, mm-hmm. are things that she has that Heather just doesn't have. So yeah. I think of the one who's going to peak higher, I think it is Laura. And I understand the reluctance of a lot of British media not to sort of, you know, make clear which one they're favoring at this point. Sort of, you know, play it both ways. Maybe it's not that way with every individual, but as a whole, they're sort of doing that, hedging a little bit, which is which is fine. Well, it it's easy to hedge as well when they're so kind of different game-wise. Yeah. You know, I mean, because it is kind of like, what do you back? Do you back the power and the talent, like the, the kind of natural just ability to strike a ball, but propensity to, to kind of, you know, uh, crumble? sometimes because mm-hmm. uh, off I, the rails I go off the rails as 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 because laura is in in many ways she's she's kvitova-esque in that way at times um just you know it can look great one minute and it could look really really bad the next or do you take the steady player do you, do you bet the steady which is which is heather watson who i think will be you know a top 30 player consistently top 30 if not top 20 um over the course of her career and she will win tournaments and she will be good she will be a very good tennis player she's a good doubles player too and a good doubles player but when you look at it in terms of who's gonna who's gonna win slams if either of them would or anybody in that little crew of four players that were nominated for newcomer of the year it's it's hard to back it's laura i think i think basically the comparison is good i think that maybe everything goes right for heather she could be like a ronnie oh i think that's underselling it a bit no i mean i think Ronnie's Ronnie's like a top ten player who made a slam final. Yeah, and you also good. and you also twenty minutes ago were like railing on it. Well, yeah. <laughs> everything's real, everything's relative. It is. It is. No, I mean I think I think that she's better than that. I would say similar size. The size thing really si- is no similar true. size, not but not the clay court prowess. No. Um, and and Heather can hit the ball harder than Ronnie can. True. Um, and she's still learning how to like not how to do that, but when to do that. Because she can hit it pretty flat, but uh, but she's I just you know it's tough. She's just gonna be just you know undersized. Like you know it's that whole cliche of like you can't you can't teach size. Right. And in this sport, the way that it's gone, uh, you know it's tough. I mean, I could see like Heather being like a Kerber. Okay. I I, I don't know. I don't know if she has that much upside. Now we're saying top five. I don't know. Top five, maybe not. But like game game style wise. 
Like, I could see her being, like, an offensive-minded counterpuncher if she could, like, decide to hit the ball. Maybe. We'll see. She's a fun player to watch. But but Laura gets my vote, so that's the last of the categories. Yeah. On the ballot. Um, We'll find out who wins eventually. Just let's let's go from scratch. We don't know who the nominees are. But for each of these awards, who do you pick on the men's side for not player of the year? For comeback story, is there a comebacker? Comeback. Oh, comeback is actually really hard. Uh, I, have, I have a pick for this. I, 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 I guess you got to, yeah, you go first. My pick is Sam Query. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, Sam Query uh, was injured, all sorts of ridiculous injuries, you know, falling through glass tables and slipping in on at Queens last year and all sorts of stuff. And was outside the top 100 in April. And if he had won Paris, which he was actually relatively close to doing, considering he was left there, he was in the quarters, he would have been the American number one at the end of the year. Um, he's on the verge of the top 20. Sanquare is my pick for ATP. Okay. First one that comes to mind, anyway. Okay. How about you? I think I gotta go Brian Baker. Oh, obviously. Now I feel like an idiot. Obviously, Baker. <laughs> we had this. We had a discussion before. Like Baker and Haas are the two. Are the two? Yeah, I was trying to say between Baker and Haas. Uh, although Query yeah. is a really good. Sorry, Query. Sorry. No, I mean I think Sam Query is a good pick, but um, because to me, my argument for Baker over Haas is my is the same as my argument for Baker over Query, simply because Haas and Query, you knew that tennis was in them. It like, almost makes Baker like a newcomer. Almost, yeah. I could, I could, I could get Baker a newcomer actually. That is true. I mean, he hadn't played since like 2006 on the, on the main. To be honest, I barely knew who he was before this year. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. So maybe. So yeah. Okay. If you take him out of it, then comeback player to me. Haas. It might be Haas. That's totally fair. I thought. I think I gotta go Haas. I mean, Haas had to play qualities at the French this year. Yeah. He won Halla. He did well in Beat Hamburg. Roger. Beat Roger. He uh, Roger's only ever lost like somebody over thirty like in yep. years. Uh, yeah, he's had a great year and he's top twenty now. So I think that's a good pick. Thirty four. Query Query <laughs> should make it on the ballot, but he won't win. Yeah. But he's a All legit. Right. Story. No, that's good. Yeah, it was just the first one that came to mind. Yeah. I hadn't thought about. I haven't seen Haas play in a while. Team of the year. The Bryans, right? Mm, let's see. The Bryans won gold. They won the U.S. Open. I think it has to be them, just based on those two things alone. Mm. And the other picks would be like I don't know, Mary Nielsen or something, or Hayes. Hayes Stepanek. Didn't they win two? They won the Australian Open. No, Nestor Mirny won the uh, French. Okay, who won Wimbledon? Yeah. Uh, Mary oh, yeah. Nielsen. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, Brian's. Yeah. Yeah. That's set. Most improved. Um. Well, shit, hmm. Brian Baker. Go with like Monaco or something. Ooh, that's a good pick. Monaco might be it. I feel like nobody really improved. <laughs> but, I, mean, I mean, like Roundnich. Roundnich, I don't know. But he was, was he just, started out really up, good. Yeah, I mean that was just more like just upward upward trajectory. Oh, what about, what about Nisha Corey? Good call. Nisha Corey might be most improved. I think. I think he'll get my vote on this sort of completely seat of the pants thing. What is he now? Is he t- number sixteen? Nisha Corey. Um, 19. 19? 19. And Pico's like 14? Pico is 12. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I might go Nisha Corey. Yeah, because Nisha Corey had, like, he gets the nod to me over Pico and over Raonic because he had better slam results. Yeah. 
You could also go someone like looking at this list. Didn't Seppi have a really good year? He had a great year. Maybe Seppi gets it. Um, Seppi gets on the ballot at least. Yeah, no, he had a he had a phenomenal year actually. He didn't um, he didn't reach a career high, but the, the, the but what he was I mean, yeah, I mean he what he was able to do and some of the wins he put together. Oh, ooh, how about this how about this name for this category? Um, Marinko Matasevic. <laughs> the number one Aussie. Number one Aussie. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I think it's funny that like this, you know, he's the number one Aussie, and they never selected him for Davis Cup. I think it's, I think everything about that is very funny. <laughs> There's nothing about that situation that is not, on some level, humorous. It's hilarious. It is. We were we were with an Australian writer, uh, Linda Pierce, who writes for the H, mm-hmm. Melbourne, uh, in Istanbul, and right when Tomic's uh, loss and Matasevich's win guaranteed Marinko to be the number one Aussie, and. Uh, Yes, she was um, excited. <laughs> that's not that's not not the, not the right word, but I think you can imagine just poor tennis Australia yeah. having to on some level. I mean, they're going to ignore Matasovic at the Australian Open this year. I have to think, mm-hmm. um, but they also really can't pay much attention to Tomic either because you know what has happened. Let's let's talk about Bernard Tomic a little bit. Since we last left our hero, he has um, <laughs> had a few more bagelings and disappointing showings, and then was recently. Uh, um, arrested, or just sort of. Uh, no, the cops just in, called. Just, he he was called. Police were called when he was found. Uh, as it, as it said, in the initial report like fighting with a friend in a spa, but then <laughs> pictures Which, of it came out. It yeah. showed that him he was, he was on a rooftop somewhere, like naked or nakedish at least, wrestling. And apparently they were trying to throw each other over the ledge of this building. Yeah. So Bernard Talmich, everyone. Bernard Tomic, as he Tomic. insists on us mispronouncing it. How, how do um? What do we think is going to happen to old Bernie? Oh, I'm almost exhausted even trying to figure that out. Like, yeah. he's so fun to watch when he plays well. That's what makes it like so frustrating because I really want him to like just from a selfish point of view. Yeah, I want. I, lo- I love to, watching his game. Yeah, I want him to be good at tennis again because I enjoy watching him play when he plays well. But when he plays not well, it's brutal. And that on top of kind of all of the extracurricular stuff. And uh, I find him exhausting. He just, I mean, he really, he needs a a reboot of some kind. Mm -hmm. He needs some sort of, you know, sports movie montage. (laughs) It's really hard and gets his act together. You know, some sort of, I don't know, Duran Duran song or something. He just he needs that, or maybe not trade around. Maybe like a Men at Work or something. Who's awesome. a good Who's a good Aussie band for him to use? Yeah, Men at Work maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I might have to be where we go with that. Yeah. Or yeah. In Excess. In Excess. Oh, there you go. New sensation. There Olivia, you go. Olivia Newton John physical. You're welcome, yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. So I'm the sorry movie that we're doing your jobs for you. Yeah. Yeah. We try. <laughs> uh, yeah. Tomich has some uh, kinks that need to be ironed out, as they'd say down there, and. Uh, yeah, it, it could be it could be ugly the Australian Open this year. Twenty thirteen could just be ugly in general. Yeah, you know, I mean, the kid, um, you know, it's it's just frustrating because it's a, you know somebody needs to tell him like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result. It's like okay, you've been he needs a new coach. He needs to not be around his dad. You know, he needs because as much as I think people, this is just pure speculation on my part, completely baseless what I'm about to say, but. 
as much as people kind of say like, oh, like his dad's too controlling and, you know, causes issues and things like that. I think that at the same time, his dad probably offers a very safe cocoon within which Bernie can operate. Yeah. So like it's, he knows like the kid knows what to expect. He knows kind of how to, how he's going to practice, what he's going to do. And they've always, they've always had a very us against the world sort of mentality. Exactly. They They can bunker down as opposed to if like, if he could part with his father and he could work with a, you know, a solid coach and be challenged. Yeah. I think that's when you're going to see the best of Bernard Tomic or the worst. I mean, he could hate it and quit also is the flip side. It's just but, tough with, with all these, you know, parent issues that come up because I mean, really with people, you know, like Dockage, like Tomic, et cetera, who've had these parents and not that Tomic is as bad as Dockage, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just like their entire, you know, family dynamic is based around tennis. Mm-hmm. He's just as much a tennis coach as a father. Their whole their whole childhood, asking them to split that up is a lot easier said than done. Even you know much less severe cases like Wozniacki. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, she needs a different coach. You know, her dad is the only coach, and it's not she's not getting as much as she could. You know, so much easier said than done to, from the outside. Yeah, so much and so. and uh, you know you almost can see a little bit like if you follow Bernard Atomic has a younger sister Sarah who is a young junior who who uh, is, is pretty good. Um, but, uh, you know, it's one of the situations where I'm like, I feel like she's going to be, like, weirdly the better tennis player when it all comes down to it because, like, his dad will have, like, spent all of his time focusing on Bernie and she could kind of just, like, do her thing Yeah. Uh, outside of kind of that attention and spotlight. But we'll see. We'll see indeed. Yeah. And then the last... Uh award is uh newcomer atp newcomer anybody janovitz gets a recent yeah, I mean, vote, I think maybe, maybe. It, it feels recent but it kind of has to be no i think so if it's not He's, baker yeah baker or janovitz if you put baker in that category i feel like you can't be improved and or come back and the newcomer so pick one for baker and give him that come back okay because i think that is more accurate his story Okay. And just yeah. like, oh, he's really good. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Okay. So there's our there's our ballot. Solid. So while we are all probably happy to see the off season come on some level to get a break from it, Courtney, you and I just retreat to our hometowns to relax in our bases. The uh, tennis players don't really do that, do they? Don't. They try and find you know uh, sunny places, as Maria Sharapova told you, Ben sunny places where uh you know they can sit and stare at the ocean with some sort of umbrella type drink in their hand and she not, said a daiquiri, daiquiri a daiquiri her choice right. a daiquiri specifically and not think about you know the tennis but but i don't i mean so it seems like they all kind of want to go places that are like sunny which mm-hmm. i find which i kind of find to be a bit funny only because like you know tennis players basically chase summer yeah, like they're under the sun all the time. Like I would think that actually, like you'd want to go to like go skiing. Yeah, go to the Alps. Go to the Alps, you know. Which Andy Murray said, like he hadn't decided where he was going to spend his like vacation, and he had said, you know, maybe somewhere hot. And he's like, but I actually really like the snow and I like it cold, so maybe do that too. So or instead, which seems like that would be fun because that would be different. I would think so. I mean, they're scantily clad people, like throughout the year anyway. Put on some clothes. Be a little Agreed. different. Agreed. 
But uh, but which was your favorite like vacation destination? Well, there's been a bunch of different there's been a bunch of different things. Vanya King has actually been like doing like normal touristy stuff. Yeah, it sounds like she's like backpacking through Europe. Right? Backpacking through Europe, she's been like a normal American, you know, early twenties person. She went to like Ireland and then the Paris, which is weird that she went somewhere which has been like you know <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Through the course of her career, but she went to Paris, went to Ireland. Um, Agnieszka Radwanska and Ursula both went to Cuba. Which is a sunny place, and I guess maybe a more normal tourist destination for those of us who aren't American. Yeah, I guess so. Because we're not really allowed to go there. <laughs> uh, yeah, Maria Sharapova, in the midst of a bunch of other business traveling, went to uh, India and then Indonesia, a small island in Indonesia. Um, Serena Williams and her coach, uh, Patrick, went to Israel. And then immediately left Israel when people found out they were there and got excited about it. That was a, sort of an odd episode. It was. So that's been about it. I think probably other people are other places. Uh, Azarenka had to rush back to Paris. I know she was in Vegas with her buddy Redfoo and then had to go to Paris when her boyfriend fell out a window. I um, heard they're actually not boyfriend-girlfriend anymore, but... Really? Yes. Interesting. Not because of the fall, like oh. before. Interesting. But she still wanted to go see him, so that's nice. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So clearly ended well, but that's your that's your bit of Courtney gossip for the day. Okay, good to know. These pearls mm-hmm. come from nowhere. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. So those are about it. Do you know anything else? I don't know where Kerber or anybody. Kerber we know when Kerber... we were in Istanbul. She went, her yep. first trip um, after <laughs> she finished the tournament was into the swimming pool at the hotel. Correct. She Correct. and her coach, her very, very tall coach, and the German Fed Cup captain Barbara Rittner all jumped into the swimming pool which must have been very cold with their clothes on. So that's how her vacation started. Exactly right. Yeah, no, I mean, she she tweeted where she went, but now I can't remember where it is. But because um, she was at some like resort and mm-hmm. uh, I think on her Facebook page, she posted pictures and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it looks like Sam Stozer has gone back to Australia, uh, which must be nice. To, She'd expect, you know, yeah, because Aussies yeah. don't get that many chances to go home. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like people, you know, but I mean, the crazy thing is that they're back on court now Yeah. for most of them. You know, I mean, I uh, I was at um, the NTC, which is the LTA's National Training Center, in, uh, which is outside of London. Okay. Well, it's in London uh, last week, uh, just walking the facilities uh, to see a friend and you walk in and there's Heather Watson in the gym. There's Laura Robson down, you know, hitting with, with Zelshko Kryan. So, you know, the players are back there, you know, for the women, the men, I think are probably still, especially the guys who are like doing the world tour finals and stuff. Like they'll take some time off, but I think a lot of the ladies are, are back on court now. It's tough. I mean, yeah. I mean, people talk about the travel. I don't think I really got an appreciation for just how tough the travel is until I started doing a lot of back to back events this year. Yeah. I mean, I went from Melbourne to a Fed Cup tie in Worcester, Massachusetts. You can't get much further away than that, those two events. Four or five days apart, then again, right again, I see Azarenka and Serena, people who I'd seen, you know, outside the world. And then I go to Indian Wells. A few weeks after that, I see Azarenka again. And in the meantime, she went to the Middle East, you know, so. Yep. It's a lot, a lot of stuff, and it is, it is pretty tough. It doesn't really, you understand how people can get burnt out on it. Yeah. But, uh, people who don't, all power to them. Yeah. No, I mean it's incredible. I think yeah, Radvanska maybe posted that she was back on court this week, back to training. So, 
you know, it really does, I think, when you really uh, take to heart, I think, how difficult tennis is as a year-long sport, Mm -hmm. it gives you a bit more perspective on what happens when these players get sick, when they get injured, when, you know, like for me, I I admit I have a lot of sympathy for for Petra Kvitova and, and kind of physically what she had to go through this year because she you know, went to go train in the off season, in the preseason, got injured. And so started the year out of shape. And if you start the year out of shape, there's never a break that allows you to get in shape. Right. You know, and so with a very little, you know, base had to like kind of go through everything. And so that's, again, that's like what makes it the sport so tricky because your success that year is not going to come unless you actually put in like ridiculously hard yards in the preseason. And so that's like where, you know, yeah, these these players are back on court, you know, two, three weeks after, after the last ball hit and they're training harder than they would train during the year. They're doing double days. They're there at the courts from like, you know, seven in the morning until seven at night, you know, doing, you know, on court and off court. It's incredible. So there you go. I mean, it is an enviable life. On a lot of ways, but it, it's they they work for every inch of it. And tennis, especially, I mean, it's sink or swim. You have to yep. depend on yourself. It's not like you can be a, uh, I don't know, a Stefan Marbury or a Gilbert Arenas or somebody who gets a big contract and then shuts it down. Yep. Not how tennis works, for better or for worse. So, that's that. We did this a little bit in the very early incarnations of our show. Uh, around episode one or so, where we had like a little rant corner where we want to talk about something that, you know, just been on our mind, other podcasts we like, such as Slate's Hang Up and Listen to This. So we're going to do it. So do we have a name for this segment, Courtney? Not yet, but we will take suggestions. Yes, please, please suggest things. And I want to talk about just various tennis players on Twitter, one in particular, who's actually the most followed tennis player right now. It's Rafael Nadal, who's been absent from the court for a while, but very active on his... I don't know, BlackBerry or whatever he uses on Twitter or whoever operates his Twitter does. Because I do think that there's been a sort of sanitization of tennis on Twitter, I think, the more and more it's gotten established. Do you think that's fair to say, Courtney? I think that is very fair to say. It started out pretty organic. You had people like Serena spouting off the occasional weird things on their early days. You had Petkovic before she was, you know, having big results with a big person on Twitter because it was all very... You know, home home brewed for her. Roddick got on there a little later and was making a lot of you know smart ass comments as yeah. he does. Yeah, I mean, even Isner, yeah. uh, uh, Caroline Wozniacki. Yeah, Caroline was a big tweeter. They were and they were good. I mean, they were yeah. legit. I mean, they were funny. They were legit follows. They you know were pretty snarky. It was fun. Early Sam Query. Yeah. Um. Now he's back. Yes. He so please be nice to him, people. Yeah. Yeah. So Nadal got on Twitter in August of 2011, and I remember it was August of 2011 because. I was at the Cincinnati tournament. Like he joined it like that week during Cincinnati, maybe in Canada week before or something. And I asked him something about it, like his press conference. Like, oh, you're decided to join Twitter now. Like, what made you decide to do that? Are you looking forward to it? Blah blah. blah. And he was just sort of like, huh? He really did not know that he had now joined Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> he really, no, he honestly did not seem to know what I was talking about at all. And so I sort of felt bad. I mean, I mean, PR for these players is a big operation. There's, you know, money to be made. They have PR people. It all does. A bunch of players do. Um, so they don't maybe all have control over it all the time. Nadal's Twitter, especially, 
seems to have this sort of it's sort of a news ticker of like proclamations for people around the world. It just sort of it like comments on world events. Like I hope everyone in this disaster area is doing well. And I want to congratulate this person. He congratulates people all the time. Like if you do something that's good and it all doesn't congratulate you for it, probably wasn't that good. <laughs> he congratulates a lot of people. I just looked back for November. People who we're recording this on, not the date, but November 14th. We are less than halfway through November. In this time, Rafael Nadal has already congratulated or sent good wishes to uh, Jose Calderon, who I gather is a Toronto Raptor. Uh, Charlie Bellian, who's a golfer who won a tournament. Uh, Novak Djokovic on winning the World Tour Finals over Federer. A couple tweets on that. The doubles team of Granulayers and Mark Lopez, who won the London doubles also. Um, Alessandro Del Piero. Uh, Guan Tiang Lang, who's a golfer. He gave him a shout out on November 8th. I really don't know who this person is, but Nadal or Nadal's team saw something good that deserved a uh, shout. He uh, congratulated Mark Gasol, the basketball player. And then another one for Granollers and Lopez, David Ferrer going into London. Fernando Alonso, the Formula One tweeter, Sergey Bubka wishing him well on uh, after he fell out of the window. And yeah, that's all just in November. And it's been 14 days. And those are really about half of his tweets, just wishing people well. No, it's a nice thing. It's not like, you know, saying nice things to people, you can hate on that. But it's like, what is the point? If, if you're just on Twitter to do that, you know, why? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it has an entire amount of personality to it. I've met, met Nadal. He's, you know, not just a human thanking machine. So hopefully he does give practice updates and stuff too, but it would be nice to see a little more edge to it. Yeah. I mean, what becomes frustrating is when you, when you begin to think that a player's Twitter is little more than, and this sounds really stupid what I'm about to say, but little more than a, like a publicity stunt. Yeah. Like you want it. I mean, obviously that is what it is. I mean, it's a, it's a vehicle for publicity and you know, whatever, but you, what it can be. It's yeah. But you want these accounts and these players to really just kind of own it and be like, you know, this is my direct patch to fans and this is my opportunity for them to see and hear me and my voice. So when you don't get that, especially, you know, with Rafa being like the number one followed tennis player or whatever, it's a bit frustrating, but yeah. And, I mean, and the updates he gives about the practice photos, I mean, those are obviously taken by somebody else. Cause obviously, you know, they're of him. He can't take it at the same time. And those are sort of more, that's sort of like keeping you posted on Rafa. That, right. that's, that's, that I, that's more like managing, you know, keeping fans updated. Mm-hmm. So, but you just, you know, which was a little bit more of a, of a human behind it sometimes. And uh, yeah, but people, I mean, Serena, even though she's a sec- she's one who Nadal passed recently, she has sort of her moments of being sort of corporate or talking about like sponsor things, doing, you know, you know, Nike fuel, whatever. Then she also just says, you know, random stuff lets you know that she's actually hitting these buttons and that no right. one would necessarily, not that they're awful things she says, but no one would, you know, go to a, you know, Serena, team Serena meeting and decide this is what they should be doing. Yeah. So. It'd just be nice if Twitter could get back to that sort of grassroots level it once had. Totally true. So that's, right. my, that's my thought, Courtney. How about, how about you? Okay. So uh, we kind of agreed, Ben and I, before we started this little segment, that it could be about anything. Mm-hmm. It could be tennis related. could be not. 
So this is me being non-tennis related, although it is more oh, slightly only. Well, I'll get there in a second. Okay. But, so, yes. Yeah, so I travel a lot, uh, as those of you who follow me on Twitter know. And uh, because of that, um, I'm going to recommend a product that really, really helped me out this last trip. And I, oh. I, and I was like shocked. And with, uh, you know, the holidays coming up and all that sort of stuff, I figured that it would actually be a somewhat relevant recommendation. I've always had this like old black, like Victorinix uh, suitcase, like rolling suitcase, you know, two wheels, whatever, soft side, basically standard, but very nice suitcase that's like uh, held up over time. And, but like, I would always be super envious of people who I saw like wheeling, like that had like, that had luggage that had like four wheels. Mm, the four wheel. It, the four wheel. It's a game changer. I mean, like, while I'm sitting there struggling, like carrying all my stuff and trying to like, you know, and my arms like getting tired and like whatever, as I pull my luggage, like these people are literally just like walking, like drinking a coffee as they like push this thing alongside them. And it was incredible. So I finally decided because of this last trip where I was in Europe for 33 days um, and it's cold. So it's actually harder to pack because you have to actually pack like warm clothing, which take up more room. Mm -hmm. I was going to get a new suitcase. So I did. And I did a bunch of research and I finally settled on and with much trepidation because I, I was I honestly was totally convinced that the suitcase was was going to break like when I was uh, on this trip. But I cannot recommend enough the eBags Exo Hardside 24 inch spinner. It's um, sold on the eBags website, www.ebags.com. And honestly, seriously, if eBags wants to give us money for this endorsement, please send it. But they're not. So this no. is totally pure but it's just a freaking good suitcase and it was awesome because it's only like 144 bucks which and with free shipping and no tax not bad. which is like pretty cheap for like a piece of luggage which actually was a bit of the reason why i thought that it was gonna break <laughs> i yeah. was like oh man i bought like a super cheap piece of luggage and it's gonna totally backfire but it didn't and it endured cobblestone streets it endured me getting lost for an hour and a half up and down hills in Istanbul. It endured like seven airports and uh, trains and getting thrown on and off things and bounced up and down stairs and all that and came home. Great condition, kept everything inside. Perfect. It's a beautiful color of green. Oh, thank you. I do have the green and both Ben who I, I had to like flurry, I had like a scurry to pack one morning to get my flight out of Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also had to scurry to pack when I was leaving Berlin to go to London. And I was with Alex Willis at the time. Like, I don't know about you, but Alex was absolutely shocked about the amount of stuff that I was able to pack in there and have it actually close. I was impressed. It is impressive because it's hard sided. Mm hmm. And so you wouldn't think it would have much room, but it does. It does. So anyways, that's our recommendation. If you guys need luggage, I highly recommend it. Like, can't recommend it enough. There's not a single downside to it. Did you get any more stickers along the way? Because I know you were collecting stickers on our leg of the trip. I did not. I, like, basically, like, it all ended in Istanbul because none of the shops. So I was been putting, like, old school, like, country stickers on my brand new green suitcase. Um, So I have one for Austria. And I had one for Slovakia, but Istanbul, I could not find sticker anywhere for Turkey. And then I also could, and then in Berlin or no, and then I couldn't find one in Denmark. 
And then when I was in Berlin, I did find one, but then I didn't buy it at the time, thinking that I was going to go back and buy it, and then I forgot. And then I couldn't find stickers in Britain, which is weird. They probably call them something weird, like pasties or something. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so yeah, so I only have the two that I had when I was when we, when I was with you, and then so it's entirely possible that I'm just going like, to go online and just buy them. They probably that, I was, that's what I was going to recommend. Yeah. I'm sure there is like a centralized, you know, oval sticker outlet online somewhere you get them each for 10 cents exactly so yeah so unfortunately but i'm gonna i'm gonna keep that up i think that's good it's the it's the benefit of having a hard side suitcase now you can put mine mine i don't like because i have like a duffel bag and it doesn't even stand up your duffel bag needs to go dude basically my endorsement just now was kind of directed at you i could i I wasn't (laughs) i was i could tell i could tell i mean my bag the zipper is sort of coming off sort of sort of i mean it's still whole it doesn't things don't fall out of it that's true. But the zipper is separating from the uh, the rest of it. But yeah, seriously, um, it's, duffel, it's like a rolly duffel, and it doesn't like sit up. No. Nah. But you always try to make it sit up. Uh-huh. And it sits up for about two seconds, and you walk away. And, and then it falls over. Whatever. I pack. I pack knowing that. <laughs> so that'll do it for us. If you want to, if you have any other luggage thoughts or thoughts on anything else, let us know on Twitter uh, at ncr underscore tennis. Or on our Tumblr or Facebook page. We still have this Facebook page. It's awesome. And you guys should check it out. Yeah, do all of that. We will talk to you next time. We missed you guys. We'll be around more in the future. We're See you later. Late.